Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In October of 2018, the Washington Post ran an article entitled Archaeologists find vampire burial site of child feared capable of rising from the dead. More than 1,500 years ago, in a vast Roman villa, a young child was buried with a large stone the size of an egg in their mouth. Researchers speculate the child likely died from a malaria outbreak at the time. The reason it turned out was the custom among Europeans at the time to stop the child from rising from the dead to spread the disease to others. Another child, a three-year-old girl, was found not far from there, with stones weighing down all limbs. Locals dubbed the find the Vampire of Lugnano, and a quote from an archaeologist working the site stated, Beyond these bizarre discoveries were human beings who lived in fear. The question is, fear from what? Many, familiar only with the sparkling erotica of the Hollywood vampire craze, might be perplexed to hear of the vampire being dispatched with stones. In fact, the vampire of folklore could be destroyed many ways. A popular method was to drive an iron stake through the suspect's head. Our ancestors, you see, viewed things with a spiritual or otherworldly sense. Much like the vampires themselves, some materials possessed properties that were purer than others, metal usually being at the top of the list. In fact, the more pure or rare the metal, the better it seemed to work against the undead. This is where we get the idea of the silver bullet being used to kill a werewolf. Most often, however, the measures taken to destroy a vampire were preventative. People suspected of being a vampire would have stones heaped upon their legs or in their mouth to prevent them from taking their midnight strolls. People would place scythes around the corpse's neck so that if it moved, it would cut its own head off. If the matter were dire, though, the head would be removed before burial and placed in the corpse's lap. Those who wished to take no chances would burn the suspected vampire to ash and scatter it to the wind. You're listening to Devilry, and I'm Matthew William Motzinger. The vampire is not a new concept by any means. Civilizations as old as the Hebrews spoke of a demon by the name of Eluka that would suck the blood of a man. No less than the Dead Sea Scrolls lists Lilith among the monsters of note, draining her victims of their vitality. The seven Udugs of Sumerian mythology would roam the earth at noon and midnight 
shooting arrows of sickness, hearkening back to Psalm 91, 5 through 6. Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the arrow that flieth by day, nor the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor the destruction that wasteth at noonday. These were the seeds that would grow and germinate, with Brem Stoker's half-historic Wallachian prince. You don't have to go halfway around the world to see the grave of a vampire. The United States has its own Transylvania in the shape of its smallest state, Rhode Island. Just over 20 minutes outside of Warwick, in the small hamlet of Exeter over 200 years ago, Stuckley Tillinghast had a dream. Stuckley was an industrious and hard-working farmer, known around town for his good sense, fair dealings, and prudent nature. He married a beautiful woman and settled down to the life of a gentleman farmer. As time passed, Stuckley's farm and family grew. His wife produced no less than 14 children, and Stuckley, for his part, increased his land holdings to one of the largest in the area, and at the turn of the century was doing quite well for himself. It was then he dreamed that half the trees in his orchard withered and died. Uncertain of the dream's portent and disturbed as to what it might mean, he worried to no end, but he did not have to wait long. His eldest daughter, by the name of Sarah, took ill with galloping consumption, a form of tuberculosis that moves quickly, killing its victim usually within months. Sarah died shortly after contracting the disease and was buried in the family plot. Though this horrible loss was behind him, Stuckley knew that there was more in store. His dream had told him so. Soon after, another daughter, Ruth, fell ill with the same rapid deterioration. Only this time, a new symptom arose. Ruth complained that every night, Sarah would return and sit on different portions of her sister's body, crushing them and causing immense pain. After each visit, Ruth would worsen until she too joined her sister in the grave. It wasn't long before two more of Stuckley's children were stricken with the wasting disease and passed, both complaining of Sarah's visitations. It was only after his wife, Honor, fell ill that Stuckley finally moved to act. Four of his children lay dead. Another son was soon to join them. And now his wife. He was desperate and at his wit's end. So he did what his ancestors had done, what his neighbors were no doubt pleading him to do. He summoned a town council and took little time in judging that they must exhume the bodies of the dead children, after which their hearts were to be cut out from their chest and burned on a stone before the Tillinghast house. Upon disinterment of the bodies, three were found to be in a normal state of decomposition. The first to have died, however, Sarah, was remarkably well-preserved. Her nails and hair had continued to grow. Her eyes were open and in a fixed stare. Her heart and arteries were found to still have fresh blood in them. It was clear to all present what had afflicted the Tillinghast house. They cut out her heart, brought it to a nearby rock, and solemnly burnt it. The bodies were returned to their respective graves, and the white death ceased to plague the Tillinghast household. Stuckley's wife began to get better, but his son was too far gone, and he died shortly after the exhumations. 
To many, this may seem like a sad experience of poor, uneducated peasants from the days before the advent of modern medicine and the understanding of disease containment. Torn apart by grief and loss, they must have searched for an explanation and understanding anywhere they could. Yet it is odd that they would look in the preternatural for answers when the divine was always at hand. Folk medicine certainly ran rampant in the colonial days, and people whipped up some strange cures. Yet listeners might be surprised to find that people as early as the 14th century understood the spread of the Black Death to have something to do with human contact. This is evident during the outbreak in Europe during that time, in which Poland closed off its borders. While an estimated half of Europe died around them, Poland remained relatively unscathed. More surprising is the many strange cures had precedent. People used them because they worked. For our ancestors, vampires were a deadly game. You have to understand, vampires in history and folklore were not some strange noble from a faraway castle. They were almost always your brother, your sister, your neighbor, or your friend. To our ancestors, the vampire was often a very personal affair. The legend of the vampire grew out of the minds of Christian communities of Europe, and more definitely, treated as a demonic entity possessing the dead body of an unbaptized or unrepentant sinner. Often, those accused of witchcraft were burned, because if they were buried, they would likely become vampires. The plague of their sin could survive death, and in so doing, become a catalyst for a different kind of plague. The symbolism is clear, and not hard to nail down. In the resurrection of the dead body, the demon openly mocks the resurrection of Christ. To accompany this belief, as now in the Orthodox Christian community, there is a demonic or demonic force behind every disease. Just as the Roman Catholics profess belief that there is a demon behind every sin, the vampire fused both beliefs into a new horror the world had not yet seen. The vampire was a horrible, disgusting, creeping thing. It loathed all existence, most of all its own, and would spread death and disease to all in the community. An example of this comes to us from William of Nuremberg, a historian of the 12th century who is praised today for his impartial recounting of the dispute between King Henry II and the Archbishop of Canterbury. William seems to have had an interest in warning his readers about the terrifying creatures that stalked England in those days. He marks the story from Yorkshire of a wicked man who got into some kind of trouble with the law, which caused him to move to Castle Anatus. He did not seem to learn from his mistakes, however, because after marrying, he subsequently died while injuring himself in an attempt to catch his wife in adultery. William notes the man died without repentance, yet was given a Christian burial. This did little good, however, as soon after, the man returned from the grave and roamed the streets, pursued by a pack of dogs, poisoning the very air of the town, until in every house death reigned from the monster's putrid breath. As the plague spread, many in the town began to flee, 
Out of despair and confusion, the parish priest called a council to discuss how the best to deal with the evil in their midst. While old men talked, young men took action. Two brothers who had lost their father to the creature were out for revenge. They grabbed a spade and sulked to the graveyard, for they knew what action might be taken to rid them of this horror. They dug up a shallow grave and found before them a terrible sight. The body was bloated beyond belief, its clothes were tangled and torn to bits of rags and blood. In a fit of rage, one brother struck the corpse with a spade, after which a vast amount of blood began to spout forth from the wound, leading them to believe the creature had stuffed itself by the blood of their many dear friends and neighbors. They then drugged the corpse outside the city, removed its heart, and cut it into tiny pieces, and burned both heart and body on a great pyre. William notes two things after. The brothers reported their grisly deed to the council, who took no reprisals for their action. He also notes that after the vampire's destruction, the plague ceased in the town, as if the very air had been purified by the flame. Another roving corpse comes to us from the pages of Walter Mapp, also from the 12th century. In his work, he describes a young military man by the name of John Ludden, who wrote an appeal to the Bishop of Hereford, asking for assistance in dealing with a deceased house guest who returned nightly to torment the home. Each night, he would stand outside the house and shout the name of an occupant three times. The person named would fall sick and die within three days. It was found the deceased had been an atheist and died outside the church. The good bishop surmised that by some intervention, the devil had taken possession of the undead corpse, giving it its supernatural proclivity. He instructed to disinter the corpse, cut its throat, and sprinkle holy water on and around the grave. William did as instructed and reburied the corpse, but it was all for naught. The monster continued to torment the inhabitants of the house until one night William heard his own name called. In a mad frenzy, he grabbed his sword and rushed after the monster, swiftly cutting off its head, after which the nightly attack ceased. The peasants of the 12th century knew of the plague. They knew its devastation of a community, the corruption of the body, the horrible death it induced. They knew a suffering and a fear far more horrible than most of us could ever understand today. For they faced it in their daily lives. Was the vampire merely a byproduct of this fear? Or fear a byproduct of it? Our forefathers saw man as a dual being, part spirit and part animal, with a foot in both worlds. Evil like the disease they faced, was a real and palpable thing, and it was born of men's actions in life, and paid for in their death. For them, to make the jump to a corpse being possessed and returning from the grave was not a hard leap of faith. Should we disparage their fear and say they were fools? In the aftermath of the Tillinghast vampire, the rest of the family moved on. Stuckley lived to a ripe old age of 85. 
He and his wife, Honor, lost five children to the clutches of the undead. But he was not the only Tillinghast to have slain a creature of the night. And it is often wondered by folklorists if Mary Tillinghast listened at her grandfather Amos's knee to the stories of how, as a young man, his father had stopped a vampire academic from destroying his family by exhuming the corpses of his siblings and burning their hearts. For when Mary's stepdaughter fell ill and died, her husband, William Rose, a prominent man of Exeter, shortly after dug up her body, cut out and burned the heart. One might easily imagine, then, that when a daughter of William's neighbor, a Mr. George Brown, fell ill and died, William likely advised him that the only way to halt the death of his son was to exhume his family, find the vampire that was feeding upon them, and destroy it. Listeners might already be familiar with the vampire case of Mercy Brown, as it is the best documented case of vampirism in the United States, and has been covered many times. But for those not familiar, I will recount it here. George Brown was a well-to-do farmer of Exeter, Rhode Island. But like many of the time, consumption ravaged the world around him. In the late 19th century, more than 25% of the deaths in New England were attributed to tuberculosis. The Brown family fared no better. In 1883, George's wife, Mary Eliza, died from consumption, followed by his eldest daughter, Mary Olive, only seven months later. He was granted a short reprieve from the destruction of his family, but less than a decade later, his son Edwin and younger daughter, Mercy, would both become ill. Edwin was sent to Colorado Springs in the hopes of a cure, while Mercy stayed behind and slowly died. Edwin would return home, knowing that he did not have long to live and not wanting to die in a strange place far from home. Mercy died not long after his return, and it was then that the community took action and pleaded with George that the only means by which to save his son was supernatural. Not wishing to take part in the grisly ritual himself, the members of the community called upon the medical examiner by the name of Harold Metcalf, and then got down to work. After digging up first his wife and eldest daughter and finding them in a normal state of decomposition, the team then moved to Mercy, who, it was found, still looked rooty, with her hair and her nails grown, but most telling was that blood still flowed in her heart and veins. The townsfolk had found their vampire. The good doctor protested that because the body had been stored during the winter and then buried in the spring thaw, the delay in her decomposition was normal and nothing about her was unusual. The men paid him no mind and promptly cut out her heart and liver, burned it on a nearby stone. They then took the ashes and mixed it in a tonic and gave it to Edwin to drink in the vain hope that this might inoculate him from the vampire's clammy embrace. It was of no use, though. Edwin died not two months later, leaving his father utterly alone. (laughs) 
The sad story of the Brown family is all too familiar to those who would discount the vampire as myth. Man, before the advent of modern medicine, fumbled in the dark for hope, often finding only despair. They ended at that, a misunderstanding of decomposition, a lack of understanding about the disease, and the myth of the vampire is slain upon the altar of modern science. Those who would be quick to do so, however, might take note of the words of Reuben Brown, a descendant of George and Mercy. In 1984, the 87-year-old Reuben was likely the last living witness to those who partook in a vampire slaying in America. His words, strange and forgotten, are rarely noted in Mercy's clean-cut case of pre-modern misunderstanding and ring hollow in their judgment. He said that all who grew sick and died in the Mercy Brown case had marks on their throats and that no one knew how they got there. Reuben also noted that after her interment, Mercy's body had mysteriously shifted and most notably, he marked the mysterious deaths by consumption ceased after the slaying had taken place. He stressed in his own words, my father believed she was a vampire. He said all those girls had marks on their necks and throat when they died. Devilry is written and produced by me, Matthew William Monsinger. Music by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoy listening to Devilry and would like to help support us, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. A transcript of this episode, as well as a full bibliography, is available for free at devilrypodcast.com. Go there if you'd like to know more about the strange and the terrible things of the world. And as always, stay weird, my devils. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.